Welcome to episode 330 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Listen, we're still talking about ecclesiology. Why? Because it's just so good. I don't actually know. Actually, maybe you do know what number this is in our series of topics about the church. God's called out ones. But hopefully people are getting a sense we're moving through. Like there's all kinds of different flavors kind of of ecclesiology. Not like the flavors we were actually just talking about with respect to polity, but more just I think there's sometimes we don't think about how good ecclesiology is yeah. and all its many facets for us to understand in the process. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into it of course, but I, I think yeah, we will. people don't think about the importance of ecclesiology and how central it is to the Christian faith. And that that's sure. part of the problem. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll leave that little teaser there for you. We'll bury the lead a little bit uh, for probably the next 20 to 30 minutes. Someone's going to give us a one-star <laughs> review. I'm sure on I, iTunes, uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll put a pin in that until we're ready to rock and roll with it. Well, you're, you're proposing that we go full burying. Like we actually dig a hole and we throw the topic in there. We're not going to tell people upfront what it's going to, I mean, no. you saw the title presumably, right. or maybe it's you true. did and we just dropped into your ears. So yeah. So, so maybe just, a t- maybe like a hint, like a hint okay. sprinkle. This is the application of everything we've talked about for the last couple of weeks. Uh, we talked a tiny bit about it in our episode on the visible church. So we're going to unpack uh, unpack what it actually means to be people of the people of God in the visible, concrete embodiment of the church on earth. That's kind of where we're going. So you're saying it's like the application study Bible, but better. It's. <laughs> I don't even know how to react to that. I went there. I actually have a life application study Bible sitting on my floor over here that I've had since I was in high school and my son pulled it off the shelf. So was yeah. he looking for some more application? He just didn't sense there was enough. I don't know. I think he was throwing it down in a fit of rage. He's trying to get out the ESV study Bible right next my to man, it. Probably. That's my nephew. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's let's, uh, let's rock some affirmations and denials. Why don't you start with your affirmation today? I'll throw you off. Okay. This is totally random. It just happened because I realized I needed an affirmation as we sat down to it's record true. here. And I've been enjoying this thing. Sometimes things pop into your life that are just like so small. Maybe this is the ordinary means affirmation again, but so small that you just find yourself enjoying them and you never even thought this would be a thing that you would enjoy. So my wife actually got as a gift this thing. I think it's from Costco. It was an advent calendar of candles. It's 25 tiny little candles in a giant box that you would open one day at a time. And at first I was like, how fun could this be? Turns out super fun. And part of it was because they're all like differently flavored candles or scented. That's probably the Are better Are you eating word. the scented. candles? You're not supposed to eat candles. Yeah. Some of them have a strong flavor. You must get that sensibility about them. But so 25 differently scented candles. And part of the fun game was when we opened them each day, we wouldn't look at the label and you try to guess what they were which was its own fun game and its own affirmation. So that was super fun. But because um, some of them are not to her liking, I've just been burning them on my desk. I mean, like in a container, not just like lighting my desk <laughs> up again. And I'm just enjoying them. And the one I've got rocking right now is like this um, citrusy one 
but like some of them are hilarious. And this is why my wife wasn't a fan. One of them was called like fireplace and it was supposed to emulate or simulate like a smoky fire. And I'm, I'm pretty chill with sense. So I was like, I'll burn that. She was like, get that out of our house. <laughs> that is just a horrific smell. So I think that Costco does this every year, but if you're in the market and honestly, I think it was like 25 bucks. It's a really decent deal for all these candles. They burn really long. Some of them have fun scents, but then it's really fun to try to guess them because let me tell you something there. And maybe people have better palettes than I do, but I'd say there's a low probability. You're going to guess the hot toddy scented candle. <laughs> Just for the record, it was a lot of stuff like that. You know, it's, it's scents that are of course classic around the holidays. It might be citrus. It might be pine, but then there's other more funky stuff that'll be like <laughs> clear morning. And you'll be like, what does a clear morning smell like that candle? I'm just picturing that scene from Harry Potter where they're eating the every flavored beans <laughs> and he's like, yes, Oh, like this one is vomit. <laughs> is there a vomit like scented, vomit scented uh, candle in there? There probably is one. I, I've forgotten them now, and that's why it's fun. I'm going back through and just uh, burning them as we... I just have one out at a time. There was stuff like that. Like I Usually, for whatever reason, I always started. So I would smell it, and I'd be like, oh, you're not going to like this, which is super fun. <laughs> the hand somebody a candle where you're like, this is the rump-scented candle. Please enjoy. You just wanted to say the word rump. Yes, that's a great word. It is a good word. a good word. So yeah, maybe it's a candles affirmation. Maybe it's a find a fun way to play a game with your spouse affirmation. I don't know. It's all those things. Honestly, there wasn't a lot of thought went into this, except that I'm just seeing the candle. I lit it before we started and I thought the the uh, makeshift studio smells delightful right now. I think and like, like 40% of our affirmations involve us looking around the room trying to find something we like. That's a real struggle when we're not sure what to affirm. You can see... If you were to watch our little video stream that isn't streamed anywhere, you can see us like looking around the room, trying to jog our memory on the things that we, so I have started to write down my affirmations in my bullet journal. So I'm a little bit more on top of things than I usually am. Yeah, that that's awesome. I I mean, there's so many great things out there and can I put a plug in for something that I'm affirming, but not actually a part of, and that is, I do understand that in the Telegram chat, and if you want to, again, connect with other like-minded individuals who are listening in on the conversation and being a part of that, the way to do that is to go to your browser, your web browser of your choice, type in t.me backslash Reform Brotherhood. You will get a link to join the Telegram chat. It's an app for chatting. It's Mm -hmm. just a messaging app, but we have a group within there. One of the little channels in there, as I understand it, is Affirmations and Denials, which it seems to be very popular from what I understand. All kinds of people are saying, listen, I'm affirming this or denying that. I think that's lovely. It is. It's it's lovely. That's a great word for it. You can listen, loved ones. You can do it too. You don't just have to listen to us. You can affirm whatever you want. Maybe you're tired of. Again, we are nourished. We are strengthened by our one star reviews, especially <laughs> if those one star reviews are because our affirmations and denials are, are too long. That might be true, but the thing is. This is free of charge. It's like Obi-Wan Kenobi when he's like, if you strike me down, I'll become stronger than you can ever imagine. (laughs) If you give me a one-star review, I will become stronger than you can ever imagine. Yes, we find them nourishing. So anyway, enough about me and the candles. They're great. Go check out Costco. Affordable, super fun, lots of different scents. And if you're like, man, I would love for my house to smell like a campfire. Like, where can I get that? It's in this package. So there you go. Now you know. Knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe. What are you affirming with? 
So I'm affirming a new book that I stumbled across, and it's not a it's not your typical kind of sit down and read it from cover to cover book. Although I suppose you could sit down and read it from cover to cover if you want. It is called A Divine Tapestry, and is written by Ryan M. McGraw, who I believe is a professor at Greenville uh, Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And what Divine Tapestry is is a single sentence summary and an accompanying memory verse for every chapter in the Bible. Oh, nice. So one of the things that I've been uh, for a long time trying to figure out how to do, you know, we, 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 I think Christians have a good way of sort of like figuring out generally where something is in the Bible. So like, if you were to say like, where does the Bible teach this? I think most people who are serious about studying scripture could be like, oh, I think that's in one of Paul's epistles. Or they might be able to say like, ah, oh, it sounds like something out of Ephesians or, oh yeah, that, that thing about the locusts, I think that might be in the book of Joel or whatever, you know, wherever it might be. Um, or, you know, the 10 plagues. Oh yeah, I think that's in Exodus and I'm not quite sure where. One of the things we're not so great at, and I say this myself, is if someone were to say like, well, what is, uh, what's Ezekiel chapter 22 about? I don't know. I have no idea. I couldn't answer that question. So I've been looking for a long time for a good way to try to memorize where things are located in the Bible. Like, what is this chapter about? So for a while I was taking like the outlines from like the Reformation study Bible and I was trying to memorize those outlines and that wasn't really working. Uh, The structures aren't consistent from book to book. Um, I was trying to generate my own summaries. At one point, I was asking chat GPT to write a one-sentence summary of a chapter, and I was finding it was giving me some weird answers. So this has been extremely helpful because now I can just take that one-chapter summary, plug it into AnkiWeb, which is what I use for memory uh, memory verses and stuff, and then just work on memorizing this summary. And it's coming from a, a reformed author, so I know it's reliable, it's vetted, um, it's crafted really well. And then I can also plug in the accompanying memory verse and the memory verses are designed to sort of be a verse in the book or in the chapter that kind of represents the overall chapter. So like the, the verse for Genesis three is the promise to the woman, right? Or the verse for Genesis one, I think is chapter is like uh, verse 26 and 27 when God makes man in his own image. So you can tell that I've only made it through like Genesis chapter three in this journey here, but it's, it's relatively inexpensive. It's a a paperback book. If you buy the hardback copy or it's on Kindle for like 15 bucks, if you get on Amazon, it's not expensive. Uh, it's a really good resource, especially if you are, you know, sometimes I think people, they read the Bible and they have a tough time sort of like latching on to the main themes. So this book was really designed to accompany your regular Bible reading so that you could see what the main theme or the overview of a chapter is as you're doing your devotions and then work on memorizing memory verses and stuff as you go. So check it out. Ryan McGraw is the author. He's a good, sharp scholar. uh, And the book is called A Divine Tapestry, a summary and memory verse from every chapter of scripture. I love the way you just said that. It almost sounded like we went into like if people, some people of a certain age and era remember this. If you don't, I'm looking at you, young bucks, just go look this up. You kind of said that in like a reading rainbow kind of way. I did. Yeah, it was like a really nice, like a really like lovely and kind of like encompassing, inviting way that you said the title at the end there is, you know, reading is great. So take a look. It's in a book. It's reading <laughs> there rainbow. We go. I was going to say, there we go. That's great. Um, yes, I think this is a great idea. Here's what I would pair this with. Something we talked about before is a great way then to say you want, you look at Philippians and you want to get like a lay of the land. 
pair this then, it just strikes me, pair this with like something like the memory palace technique. Yeah. Where you associate each verse with some kind of picture in your mind, you're walking through your house. Yep. And then all of a sudden you're getting this outline that you get to memorize and it becomes common and easy to recall. That's a really great idea. So I would say like more than 90% of the work in this case is having somebody help you to right. figure out how you can systematize it. But once you have that, there's so many great memory techniques yeah. you could just pull right in because now you've got these like discrete little things, these little blocks that you can put together. So I'm definitely going to check this out. And that is way better than candles. I mean, <laughs> you could candles. light one of your every flavored candles as you read this book. You could associate a sentence in the book with a particular smell of a candle. That, uh, that could be a memory uh, technique. I'm not gonna lie, that started to get strangely Roman Catholic for me. Right <laughs> it's there. true. It's I, true. I guess, I guess I'm pretty much feisty on this episode. I've already come after the application study Bible and Roman Catholics in the candle situation. Yeah, I feel like feel like uh one more episode about lighting candles and reading, memorizing things, chanting is it's gonna be the <laughs> Roman Catholic Brotherhood. Uh, see, again, if you if you skip this, everyone, you're missing out. It's true. It's true. I know you want us to get to the topic we've buried in the backyard, but we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Can I switch it back to you and say, can oh. you continue on for us and go into a denial? I can do that. So this is a little bit of a meta denial. And what I mean by that is it's it's sort of like a denial hiding an affirmation nested in a broader denial. So I'm denying when you let your email become more than email. So oh. One of the things that a lot of, you know, if you've been listening for the last month, maybe two months that I've been on a big kick is a big productivity kick, right? I read, re, you know, Building Your Second Brain by Tego Forte. I read Atomic Habits. I did the bullet journal method. Um, I'm sort of studying stoicism. It's sort of this like complex of, I don't know, like pop YouTube productivity, I don't know, whatever it might be. And one of the things, if you were to subscribe to the Forte Labs, which is Tiago Forte's website, Forte Labs uh, newsletter which it's a fine newsletter. I don't know what, I don't know what his background is, but I think he was raised in some sort of Christian context. He tells stories about going on missions trips and doing like service projects across the border in Mexico. Um, so I don't know what his faith is like now or, or, or whatever you want to say, but I think he has some sort of Christian background. That's a totally irrelevant aside, but he doesn't cuss in his newsletters. He's, he's a clear writer and he seems to be relatively straightforward. But one of the things he sends you is like a, it's called a productivity stack or how to like clean up your email box in one step or in like, like one session a week. And he, you know, you must imagine how many emails he's like the CEO of a company at this point. He, he basically spends 30 minutes on email in the morning and that's all he does. Wow. Yeah. He, wow. he like does 30 minutes of email. He cleans his email out from top to bottom. And then he doesn't really check his email again until the next day. He might spend longer on a Monday because he's got stuff that came in over the weekend, but he he doesn't live in his email. And one of the things he talks about is how email was originally, you know, it was a it was a program that allowed us to send messages from one place to another. And that was it. But now it's like we have our tasks are in there. We send ourselves our own reminders. Like we email ourselves things that we want to save and store. So email has ballooned up. If you think about Gmail, when it first came out, it was like this archive system was this revolutionary right. thing. And now that's the norm. So like it's become our task management software. It's become our calendar. It's become our email. It's become our task list. It's become our program calendar. 
And one of the things he talks about is if you really want to learn to be productive, you got to get, you got to stop treating email like that. So here's one practical thing that I've discovered. This was where this was going to be my affirmation, but I thought the book was a better affirmation. You can actually change the settings in Gmail so that when you're in an email and you archive it, delete it, move it, whatever you do, instead of bringing you back to your inbox, it actually moves you to the next email. And you can tell it to either go to the next email, the next oldest or the newest, whichever direction you want to go. So what I could do when I sit down on my computer is I can hop into my email. I can go through and I, you know, if it's something that I need to read quickly and then I never need to, I never need to touch it again. I archive it. I don't ever delete emails. I never delete emails. So I can archive it, pops me right to the next one. Uh, if it's something that is not applicable now. So like if I have an order coming from Amazon, I don't care that my order has been shipped. I want to, I want to be reminded when it's coming. So I, snooze that email till the day that the delivery is going to come in. Or if it's a task, I have it set up where I can actually go straight over and just create an Asana task for it. But every time I take action on something, it moves me to the next one until I'm finished with my emails. And I remember, I remember over, over uh, midwinter, no reason, uh, maybe it was this year, maybe it was the year before you spotted my email, like by the icon on my email thing on my yeah. phone. And you were like, dang, why does it say you have 300 unread emails? I was like, cause I have 300 unread emails. <laughs> so I used to be really terrible at this. I was really terrible at it at work. Uh, I was really terrible at it. My perfect, my personal life, maintaining my emails. So now I can just spend 15 or 20 minutes in the morning. I actually do it two or three times a day where I just go through and clear everything out. That's just a good rhythm for me, but it's allowed me to make email just email again. So I still get tasks that I have to do, but I don't keep those tasks in my email. I get yes. those tasks out of the way into something else. I don't keep information that I, I want to store long-term. I don't keep that in my email. I mean, I keep the email, so it's still there, but I don't keep it in my inbox. It never comes back. I move that into Obsidian or into some other knowledge management software. So one of the things that happens is we let our emails take over our life. And then all of a sudden we spend you know, forever, we're just trying to find stuff in our email. Uh, and it's really a major drain on your attention, on your productivity. Um, I used to have all this anxiety because I'd be like, I might, I might miss an important email because I've got so many emails coming in all the time that I can't, you know, somebody might email me and I might, if I keep my email clean, then I know exactly what comes in. And if it's clean, I just process it when it comes in, or I spend that 15 or 20 minutes and I just do it. Um, it really has changed a lot of the way that I manage my work and my personal life in relation to email. So check it out. I, I'm sure other ones have similar settings. It was kind of buried in Gmail. It's actually, you have to do, you have to go to one place to change the setting to allow you to go from an email to an email. And then you have to go to another place to dictate which direction it goes. Uh, and some of that is on purpose. Gmail wants you to spend time in Gmail. They're generating revenue. They're generating information as you're using it. So they want you to stay there. So they make it kind of hard. But I'm sure like if you use Microsoft Outlook 365 or if you use another similar kind of um, more modern email program, it's probably got similar features and similar kinds of uh, similar kinds of ways of managing it. This is also a really tight uh, affirmation slash denial. I'm with you. One of the things, I don't know if you, I don't think you and I have ever talked about this actually, is like a couple of years ago, I tried this experiment where I wanted to get to inbox zero at work. Yeah. And the thing is, I wasn't sure if it was possible. I think for anybody, it is possible. If you've got a bulk of emails, it's going to take you a little bit of time. Yeah. But once you start, 
I did exactly what you did without a lot of the instruction, which would have benefited me at the time, which was the idea was you receive an email. And if it's something to do, I create a task from that within Outlook. Yeah. And then it just goes there and the email gets deleted. I will say to you, and this is going to sound so crazy. It's so refreshing to have an email box that is controlled. Yes. I, I mean, that's like the idea is, and then like, you know where everything is. And if you got an email where someone's like, Hey, can you do this report for me? Or, Hey, can you look this thing up? Or you need to follow up with this person. And even if it's time sensitive or there's a particular date, you just make a task out of that. And then it's actually better because you feel you can just breathe this yep. breath of relief that says it's organized, but it's not just like cluttering up. I don't feel like I have this box. So to me, in my mind, I've turned, I guess in my life, my, I start thinking about my emails. If I, it was my my physical desk. And by having all those things just out there, to me, that was like having stacks of paper just all over the place. And I would be struggling to concentrate in my actual physical space if it was so cluttered. So it's kind yeah. of like clean desk, clean mind, clean email, clean mind. So yep. I, I'm with you. It's a shockingly and surprisingly wonderful thing to have your email under control. Again, what a time to be alive. But I would encourage people if they're kind of like, wow, these guys are spending a lot of time talking about it's like, how good could it be? It's pretty great. Yeah. So I would encourage everybody to yeah. try it. Yeah, I think you know what's funny. So you recommended this uh, web app called Superpowered, which I'm not ready to pay the cost for that email. But uh, that that app was actually developed based on yeah. the article that Tiago Forte wrote about this process. So yeah, first of all, sure. how great would how awesome is your productivity method if people are designing apps based on it? But <laughs> right. it really is like. You know, I've been on this productivity kick and it's sort of led to this like sort of like stoicism thoughts and like habit tracking, like all of this stuff is sort of in the same complex of things, but it really, it really is quite amazing when you don't have to think about the little stuff and you don't have to devote your attention to, um, so like, for example, one of the things I struggled with last year with August coming around, not the month, August, my son, August, one of the things I struggled with was maintaining a regular daily Bible reading habit. Um, which is fine. Like I totally get it. There's no judgment. It's hard when you have a little kid. It's hard. It's hard just in general, but it's hard, especially when you have a big disruption in your life and it changes your schedule. Um, it's hard to maintain that. Well, I've been really diligent now to say like, okay, the first thing I do when I wake up before I do anything else, I mean, I, I like get up and I take the dog out and I like, I make a cup of coffee, but when I sit down on my computer, the very first thing I do, it's now ingrained in me. It's a habit before I do anything else. I open up my Bible and I read today's reading. So what I know is no matter what, that's what's happening in the morning. And as long as that happens, I, as long as I do it first thing in the morning, then it gets done before the other disruptive things of the day happen, before my schedule gets messed up, before the baby wakes up and he needs my attention, before the phone starts ringing, whatever it is. And having your emails clean is just a part of this. Like at work, I sit down in the morning. My first meeting every day is at 8.30. I arrive at my office at 8 o'clock. I turn on my computer. I open my email and I clear out everything that was in there from the previous day. So when I start the day, there are no emails in there. And as right. emails come in throughout the day, I just, I look at them briefly. If it's something that I just need to read and then archive, I just archive it. If it's something I need to do something about, I create an Outlook task and then I archive it. Um, I actually have a rule set up. So every email that comes in gets flagged with a task for today. So that way it ends up in my task list for me to process that email. So there's a million ways you can do it. And I think everybody has to kind of like build their own, their own 
productivity system. Like no one, right. you, you can't just take someone else's system and just transplant it into your life because everybody's life is a little different. Everyone's work is a little different, but this has really been like this sort of like productivity kick I've been on and getting this stuff cleaned up a little bit. It really has. I mean, I think you hear people say this and you kind of like sort of roll your eyes and scoff at it a little bit, but like the getting things done, Matthew, like getting the tasks out of my head and into a system or on paper. So I don't have to think about them anymore. It really is pretty amazing how much it frees up your mental bandwidth. So you just don't have to think about it. Turn the notifications off on your phone for your email. If you know, you're going to process your email every six hours and you're not going to go back into it before that, then turn your emails off. Tell people that email is not the way to send you an urgent, an urgent message, tell them to call you on the phone, whatever it might be. So you have to look at your own life and figure out what productivity is going to work best. And productivity is not the savior, right? We're not saying that it's not like it's going to change your, it's not going to change your spiritual state for you to have a better thing, but it might That's free up sense. some of your emotional and your mental bandwidth to actually like That's think about your spiritual life a little bit more right. than you've had time and bandwidth to do before. Yeah. You're totally right about all that stuff. It, All of that is like undervalued. It's a bit of like this eschatological rest. Again, we're trying to impound and embed in our daily lives. Yeah, I think it applies as much to how we use our brains and whether we give them a space for rest, whether they're not being constantly stimulated or having to constantly recall all these things that are swirling around us in the eddies of life, the responsibilities that we have. It's okay to use the tools so that we can be freed up yeah. to be the kind of people that are thoughtful and we, that are good worshipers. And that's not, of course, just a Lord's Day activity. That's worshiping in the daily life and having freedom of mind and space and emotional fortitude to undertake the object of Jesus ahead of us, God in front of us, the Holy Spirit within us to worship. And I think all of the things you described can be a play, can be tools that help us get into that kind of headspace to use like a common term. So yeah. I'm with you. People should try whatever they need to, but they shouldn't discount those ideas because I think... Sometimes they just could put it out there as like, well, I'm not, a, I'm not really big into productivity. Like some people have that as like a hobby. I think what we're basically saying is like, let's try to get some abundant life here. Let's try yeah. to get a separation and boundaries and a place where we can be holistic people. And part of that, again, is freeing ourselves up to be with our families fully, to be with God fully, to focus on the scriptures and meditation fully. Yeah. And if you're distracted like I am, it's really helpful to have some tools to help you bring back into the center of each of those things. So that I think it was Jamelia who said, wherever you are, be fully there. And yeah. how hard is it these days to really undertake that advice? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I think for the people who might be sort of like scoffing at this, because I've run into people, I kind of like talked about this with some of my colleagues at work who've been struggling to keep up with their workload, right? Every, everyone in the entire world is short-staffed and my office is no yes, different. Sure. And so we have we have tasks coming into our office. We have different priorities and different competing demands on our time and on our schedule and our energy. And when I talked about how I manage all my work, they kind of like, that sounds like a lot of work. And I kind of jokingly, because I have a really good relationship with my coworkers, and I said, yeah, but I manage my, I'm managing my work. Are, are you managing your work or are you letting your work happen to you? And they kind of said like, oh, I'm letting my, I guess I'm letting my work happen to me. But if you think about it this way, if every time you drove, think about the first time that you drive to a new place, wherever it might be, it's a new job, you're living in a new town, you're going on vacation, a new place, wherever it might be, the, the stress and mental energy that it takes to identify where you're going. Like we, we vacation, this is, we've now been to the same beach town three years in a row. And I remember the first year that we got there, it was like super stressful when we got there. There was nowhere to park. We didn't know where the house was. You know, we parked like a mile and a half away 
And we were all stressed out about it. And then everything sort of loosened up because this was a beach town. And once we hit the week, everything loosened up. Well, now we know where things are there. We know that it's okay that we're going to have to park a mile and a half away the first day because it's only going to be that first day that we have to do that. All of that mental energy that you have to spend figuring things out the first time, you gain that back the second or third time. And I can tell you for sure, like my vacation in Ocean Grove was so much more enjoyable the second year and even more enjoyable the third year because now I know the town. I know where the bagel place is. I know where to get ice cream. I know where the store is. I know how to get to the beach. It's the same thing with our daily routine. The first time that you have to figure out how to do your daily routine, it stinks. It's really, really stressful. But when you don't have to think about every single step along the way and you just do things the same way every day, you know, you make room for there to be variation when something comes up. But like if you don't have to think about, all right, my day, for example, I get in the shower at 645 every morning. That's just that's when I get in the shower and that I take a certain amount of time in the shower and it unfolds basically the same way every day. I leave for work at the same time every day. I arrive at work at the same time every day. I don't have to think about those things for the most part. That's just mental energy that I can use for something else. Even if that just means like I when I when I give my son a hug in the morning before I leave for work, I can be truly, really present in that little one minute that I'm I'm spending giving him a hug before I leave for work because I'm not trying to figure out, okay. All right. All right. What time is it? Do I have enough time to get to work? Am I going to be late? Do I need to stop and get coffee? I don't have to think about any of that. So I can be truly present in that moment. So you might scoff at sort of this, like it might feel like micromanaging. And for some people it might be, it can certainly turn into an idol, I think. But I think if you give it a chance and you sort of like, God has built us to be creatures of rhythm and creatures of habit and creatures who do repeated actions. Like it's baked into the very nature of our religion that we we worship on a regular cycle and we do basically the same thing every Sunday. It's very rare that a Sunday morning is drastically different than any other Sunday morning. And that's by design. And that natural rhythmness of the human creature, there's no reason that that's exclusive to the Lord's Day. Like things just work better when you function on sort of this regular rhythm of things. Yeah. And that's daily worship. Like we've talked about before yeah. it, uh, of course, I think what's equally important to note is that it's not like being fastidious for the sake of that. It's so that you can allow some extemporaneous living, some guidedness by the Holy spirit and others as your needs change in your life. But you're exactly able to undertake those things because you have a center of gravity as it were. And so it gives you the freedom again to undertake that thing to deviate slightly because you have a regular rhythm. So I would argue that outside of a regular rhythm, this idea of just being extemporaneous builds actually chaos. It brings more stress, brings more strife. But having a regular rhythm of which you're able to knowingly deviate from for a short period of time and then come back actually gives you greater comfort and strength and more power, more empowerment because all the decisions that we make require some emotional and physical fortitude. You know, like studies have shown that of course, if they require people to make hard quote unquote moral decisions in the afternoon, they will make worse choices because by that point in the day, they're exhausted with all the other, even small decisions that have compounded and your body needs, needs glucose and all this other stuff to do that stuff. So it's just, it is the way that God has made us. It's just better to lean into the way God has made us. And I think that we so often overestimate our own ability to work and do things. Yeah. And just, I can handle it. Don't worry about that. Like I can handle all the emails. It's all under control. And I think God is saying, slow down, rest, find rhythm, find process. These are great gifts that I give to you. And in some ways, of course, they exemplify his character. One last thing I want to say about email, and that is to Christians, brothers and sisters who are listening. 
there is a great testimony in email. And what I mean by that is, while you shouldn't have a slavish devotion to it, that is, feel compelled to respond in a certain period of time, I know for a fact in my own life, in my own profession, that those who respond well and respond within a relatively reasonable period of time get a reputation for being kind and considerate and responsive and helpful and attentive. And that counts for a lot. Cause if you've yeah. been the kind of person that's been trying to get a response from somebody and just sending them emails and they never get back to you, you know how frustrated it is. It's almost unique in our day and age for somebody to be able to manage that well and have their communication on point. So that again, they're not like having to respond instantly when they get something, but that the person who is, who's reaching out to them knows that they are going to get a response and it will be thoughtful and they always paid, paid attention to it and they all met their particular need. That actually offers, strangely as it is, a really strong testimony in our age. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Have we buried the lead enough yet, Jesse? Is it is there someone who would give us less than one star? Because I think that's what we were going for. Yeah, I mean, we're already like 32 minutes. I, I just I, feel, maybe we owe people an apology. I feel like we're being really snotty about this. About the one star thing? About yeah, the like... We receive those stars. We receive the stars. And you saw a title, you saw a topic, and you thought they're going to get to it in a reasonable period of time. This is, I mean, kind of how we do it. So if you're new and you're just hearing us for the first time and you're thinking, my goodness, they're all the way in. And allegedly, Jesse has a denial. And who knows if that's even going to happen. <laughs> and we, we need to go on. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just set my denial aside because I think we've had a lot of good conversation. I, I hope that when people understand our format and we get to these affirmations denials. This is real talk, everybody. Like yeah. just sit down for a second. This is real talk that we're talking about things that we think have great value. Again, if we're affirming something that's brought us joy or gratitude all the while though, I think when you and I envision this topic matter, it's always about how does this connect us though in a spiritual way? Like what is really behind the thing that we're talking about? They either cause us to give God praise or gives us pause to say, you know, we ought to not participate in this thing or we ought to pull away from that thing. So that really is our heart behind it. It's, it wasn't just a way to like, we need a way to open that conversation. We need banter. It was more about everything that we interact with in some ways has as its center, of course, God himself. And so we ought to try to process everything through a theological lens, not because it's a way to appear smarter, but because it's a way to honor God more. So that's really where we're at. And honestly, that's what brings us to this topic of talking about ecclesiology again and coming to this idea of, we, we talked about polity and a lot of that was like almost business meeting type stuff. But let's talk about right now, ecclesiology as this mutual edification, as the communion, literally the bringing together, the uniting calm together of the saints and what that means. And I think a good place to start with all this is this idea that it is undervalued that like it's just easier to think about like people want to people want to promote polity people want to promulgate polity people want to take pride in their own polity and if at the end of the day we've learned a lot of stuff about what it means to be called out ones but we're not the called out ones together and that doesn't actually mean anything this actually i think is like the most theological topic we could talk about in all of ecclesiology yeah. because some people are going to listen to us and say that's soft skill stuff you know, like whether you do a coffee hour, have a fellowship hall, or whether you have ministries that bring people together, this isn't the soft stuff. This is actually just as technical as anything else because it's actually what God requires of us. Yeah. I would say there's actually a small list of like the acquired thing, acquired stuff that God wants us to know. And we will parse that stuff with great specificity in our podcast with great conversation, which is super interesting and intellectually stimulating. But if at the end of the day, <laughs> we're not actually doing anything. Yeah. 
We're not actually being anyone. And instead, we're just saying, look at us. We're really smart. And particularly in the reform world, look at us. I can go to all the confessions and tell you, this is what communion of saints is like. If you're not part of that communion, then I would say like all your theology is just for not. It's an adventure in missing the point. And I I don't want to miss the point. So let's talk about mutual evocation, understanding that maybe we kind of set it aside because it seems like a soft skill. Yeah. So I think um, one of the things that Reformed Christians do excellent at Right. The, 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 when we talk about majoring in the, the majors and minoring in the minors, the major thing that Reformed Christians focus on, in, in my experience, is loving God, right? Whether that's loving yes. God through uh, explicit worship on the Lord's Day and having a high priority on the regulative principle worship, or whether it is doctrinal precision and understanding the deep things of God and reflecting on the deep things of God. Reformed Christians have that first of the greatest commandments, um, at least in principle. We got that down on lock, right? We, we that's like our that's our jam. We love God as much as we can with everything we are. One thing I think Reformed Christians um, maybe are not so strong in is the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the first greatest commandment is to love God with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, your whole strength. Depending on which verse and which which gospel you're looking at, there's different different words that are associated with that. The second commandment, which is like unto it is to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So, so we have to be sure that we're doing that. And so, you know, we, we at the reform brotherhood have been pretty clear. Like we did a whole episode about like the, the downfall of the seeker sensitive model and like church growth, like that stuff is not necessarily the right way to go. It's usually the wrong way. It's always the wrong way to go to let, let, Unchristians, non-Christians determine how you structure your worship service. But if we're not also recognizing that one of the primary purposes of the church, the primary purpose of the church is, of course, to serve and love and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father right. and his Holy Spirit. But a related, like unto, priority of the church is to love the rest of your saints, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if we're not keyed into the the various commands, sometimes they're called the one another's in scripture. Um, right. You know, the, the, there's various passages or various pa- uh, scriptures, verses in the New Testament that talk about do this one to another, right? I, I don't remember what the number is. Somebody has counted them all up and there's a bunch of them. But that is a major component of what it means to be a Christian is to mutually edify and to to build up that's what edification means to build up the fellow believers in Christ. So I want to read um this is uh 1 Corinthians 12 and I'm going to start reading in verse 12 and I'm going to read until I feel like stopping. So verse 1 says now concerning spiritual gifts brothers I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans you were led astray to mute idols however you however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of service, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, right? For the common good. The purpose of being given spiritual gifts is for the common good, you can put in parentheses, of the church. Verse 8, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, 
to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So there's this, there's this perspective in scripture. This is one of the one of the body metaphors that Paul uses. Um, there's other places where he talks about the body of Christ and uses similar language. So this wasn't like some unique thing to the church in Corinth. It was, it was Paul's standard teaching by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's this understanding in scripture that the purpose that God calls us for is not just for our individual salvation, right? That's kind of like the evangelical pitfall is it's all about personal individual salvation. And then like, and then it's like getting rapture ready. I mean, I'm not trying to like slam on my dispensational brothers and sisters, but that sometimes is a danger that dispensationalism can fall into that. It's all about personal salvation and then being ready for when Jesus comes back and everything that happens between there is like, well, you should probably try to be nice to each other. It's a bit of a characteristic or characterization, but not that much in some circles. But Paul is very clear, the whole purpose of our salvation is to mutually edify other Christians, right? To build up one another in the body of Christ until we all attain to full maturity in our head, who is Jesus Christ. So that's, that's what I think we need to talk about and how we need to sort of think about this as the logical outcome of our ecclesiological positions, right? There's no salvation except in the church, right? That's a a standard Christian principle that nobody questioned in any real serious way until like 1850 was the first real like time people really thought like, oh, maybe we shouldn't say that. John Calvin said it. It came from Cyprian back in the early church. Luther said similar things. I mean, it was universally understood that there's no salvation outside of the church. We don't necessarily think that way. But the salvation in the church is not just, it's not just a salvation from hell. It's a salvation to something. And that's what we need to understand. Right on. And that's why I love that Paul goes the extra length to basically say like, listen, you might be tempted to think that all these giftings are for the outside. They're actually for the inside. And I often try to remind myself that edification doesn't happen by accident. So everybody wants to do a thought experiment. Think about the ways that within your own church, you've been edified, the preaching, various ministries, attendance, coming in contact with brothers and sisters. Somebody somewhere along the way made an effort, made an investment. It didn't just happen. And so when Paul is talking about, whether it's in the early church in Acts or elsewhere, I mean, not Paul in Acts, but I'm talking about Paul as he's explaining in his epistles what's even happening by way of extension when you read the book of Acts. What you see is that there's always this building of relationships. I sometimes worry in my own life and also in my brothers and sisters that I am not appropriately putting that front and center. That to be part of the church is to actually seek out and build relationship. That because you have been saved into a supernatural family above your natural bonds, that God is also saying cultivate that, lead into that, build upon that, but take proper action to pursue it. And so it's part of that is your presence, our presence is our mission by being present. That's, that's a good place to start by going to things, by being with brothers and sisters. That's of course, one of the reasons we speak so highly about the Lord's day. That is a means of grace by which God is giving us a great gift. And we have to be there. We ought to be there if we can be there, but then beyond that to invest in the lives of others, not like this word cliche way to like 
for self-aggrandizement or to build yourself in some kind of place where you have more connections or more connectivity. But instead to say like, listen, the edification that happens, happens on purpose. And I want to be with like-minded brothers and sisters. I want to spend time with them. I want to worship together on the Lord's Day. And then beyond that, I want to actually try to do something with my life that is with them as yeah. well, because they are part and parcel of my own family. So it struck me like one of the verses I, I constantly go back to because of my own desire to help lead people in worship through music is Ephesians 5. And at the end of that whole section where Paul is like, listen, don't get drunk with wine. Here's the replacement. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you need to address each other, not God, but address each other with Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He ends that whole passage by saying, listen, you do all this, you submit to one another because of your reverence for Christ. So to go back exactly to what you said, that first commandment, the loving of God should automatically lead us if we acclaim him, revere him, love him, and affirm him. It should lead us by extension naturally to submit to one another in love. And part of that submission is an edification. It is this idea yeah. that we are in this together, but that we actually need each other. Not just like the Robert Putnam, like we're better together. Again, on the heels of our conversation in the last episode about stoicism, that's a borrowed concept. Where right. do you think that comes from? This idea that when God saves a people, he saves a people. And like from every nation, tribe, and tongue, when we stand before the throne in glory, in the heavenly realm, it's not going to be as individuals. It'll be as a common voice. It'll be yeah. as a common family. So the ecclesiology that we ought to espouse is one that's actually rooted in changed behaviors and in changed perceptions, in a paradigm shift in which it's not just about, of course, like we have our own personal testimony, but the strength of that testimony is actually in its sharing it with others and coming together and rallying in a common story where no matter where you started, that God has saved us. Yeah. And that's, I think, really difficult as Westerners in particular. But we have to be honest that that's what the scripture says. That's how we ought to behave. I think our behavior is sometimes poor because it's like, I'll show up and I'll do this thing, but I really don't want to do that thing. I don't want to come to that thing. I don't want to participate in it. There's another business meeting. Like, what's that all about? Like, yeah. this is about being together. It's not just about taking care of family business in the sense that when you have people over to your house, the family has to wash and clean up the dishes afterwards while the guests get to sit on the couch and drink coffee. It's more than just that, but it's, of course, at least that. Right. It's the idea that we ought to be like building strong relationships with each other, seeking those out, and that we ought to be present as much as we can. That's not unequivocal. There should be boundaries, but it's about being present. And even for myself, I'm thinking, I want to be more and more present in the life of my visible church yeah. so that I am meeting different people. I'm experiencing different stories. I'm serving together with different people in new ways. All of this, I think, is what exactly Christ calls us to. That's like a good theology of the church. A good theology of the church is one that is put in practice and not just on the Lord's Day. Yeah. So there's a passage in Esther that sort of, I don't know 100% what to do with sometimes, right? And I, I Okay. This is one of those strange things that I think I need to be honest with is there are some passages in scripture that at least on the face of them are challenging for reformed theology. I'm not going to go to the passage. I'm just going to describe sure. it because we're going to be short on time. But this is, so the, the passage is the section where Mordecai comes to Esther and basically says like, you have a choice, Esther, you, you can either do something or, yeah. or not. And right. if you don't, someone else is, God's going to use someone else to do it. 
So that's kind of a, from a reformed Christian's perspective, that's kind of a weird, sort of a weird, uh, a weird passage. Cause it's like, is God going to have to like go to plan B? Like what's the answer there? And when I say it's a weird passage, obviously like I can look at the rest of scripture and I can give you a theological explanation for it. But just on the surface of it, that feels like God wants to use Esther and, but, and if Esther isn't in, like, he's going to have to find someone else. Like he went to all this trouble to bring her into the court. And if she's too scared to go talk to Xerxes, then he's going to have to like figure something else out. That's obviously not what the passage is saying, but that's what it feels like it's saying sometimes. I think Christians approach church, their church in that light. Well, if I don't do it, someone else, God's going to bring someone else along to do it. Like I've heard that statement actually made explicitly in like missionary drives of like, well, God wants you to go to Africa, but you know, if you don't go to Africa, someone else will go to Africa. So do you want to be involved in God's plan or do you want to let someone else get the glory? Like I've heard that said before, like I've heard that preached before, not in my current church, but in other contexts that I've been in, that is not how the church works. Right. And obviously this is a mystery in God's sovereignty. There are certain needs in your local church that only you can fill. Right. So my church we've talked about before is very small. It's very small. We have, I think we have 10 members. Um, we have 11 people who regularly attend. If you count my 11 month old son as one person who regularly attends, we have 11 people who regularly attend. There is nobody in the church who is both qualified and willing to preach when the pastor needs to take a vacation besides myself. If I don't do it, no one else is going to, no one else is going to. And I, I don't, I don't want to I don't want to sit back on my, on my laurels and say like, well, you know, if like, if I don't feel like it, then someone, God will bring up someone else who can preach during that week. There are other things in the, in, in, even in our small church where if, if someone doesn't do it, it's not going to get done. If, if the person who's gifted in this area doesn't do it, it's not going to get done. When, um, my wife who does most of the music, almost exclusively all of the music, I help a little bit sometimes when I can, if she's sick or can't sing for some reason, we don't have music. And I think that's something that I've learned as part of a small church. And I mean like small church. I think a lot of people think they go to small churches and we even joked one time about making a, I think this was like episode one. We made a joke about how we were just going to make a podcast that was like people being like, you think you go to a small church? I've only got this many people. I should go back and listen to episode one sometime. But that's the reality in a, in a lot of smaller churches. And I think when you're in a larger church, that gets masked a little bit because there's usually more than one person that can fill a role. But the fact of the matter is, if you think about the analogies that Paul uses, right? He uses the analogy here. This is verse 21 of that same chapter I was reading. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the part of the body that seems to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor. Right. And then he, he goes on to say, or he may have said it before, if there was no eye, where would the sight be? If there was no ear, where would the hearing be? If there was no one to no one who uh, was willing to run the sound system, where would the where would the amplification be? Right? right. If there was no one to fill pulpit supply, where would the pastor's vacation or sabbatical be? I mean, we, we should ask those questions. And part of what I wanted to get at with this episode, we could have, we could have, 
and probably have in the past and probably will again in the future, get into all the like spiritual, theological, technical elements of like union with Christ and union by the Holy Spirit and how that union is extended across Christians. We could get into all of that. There's actually a whole section in the in the Westminster Confession about how the theological implications of union with Christ don't mean that we become God. Like that's that's a part of what we need to talk about with this because that's a, a theology a lot of people adopt is like, well, we we're so united with Christ, we actually become mystically his body in this like spiritual sense in a way like we actually become the Christ on earth. That's the Roman Catholic model. But this episode is about the brass tacks that your job, your role as a Christian is both to glorify God and to edify and love his children. And, and right. it, you can have all of your ecclesiology. You can have all the technical ecclesiology you want. If it doesn't play out into the reality of mutual edification, the local church, in the context of a local church, if you are not participating in the local church in a way where God is using your gifts to edify others in that local church, this is a strong statement, and there, there are obviously going to be temp temporary exceptions to this, but if you are not a member of a local church and, and right. providing your gifts to the edification of the other members of that church, you are in disobedience to the scriptures. Because Paul right. is so clear that the purpose of our gifting, the reason the Holy Spirit gives these giftings is for the good of the common body, for the common good. Well, if you're not contributing to that common good— then how can you possibly say you're obe obeying the Spirit's command to do so? So I think this is really, really key and really, really important for Christians to understand because there are a lot of lone, lone ranger Christians out there, right? I run into somebody online in, in a Facebook group or a, a chat room or somewhere on Twitter at least once a week who thinks that they don't need to be a part of a local church. They don't need to be a member of a local church. They don't have to commit to a single local congregation. They can just float around to where they want because the preaching is fine everywhere. The preaching here is good. The music there is good. Well, that's a fundamentally self-centered, what can I get out of the local church kind of a perspective. That's not what God has called us to. It's not at all what God has called us to. Yeah, and we should note that, of course, like there are many things recorded in the scriptures that aren't to be exemplified. And the example you gave could be one of those, where, of course, we see represented in Esther there this sensibility about the proper theology that is the sovereignty of God to affect his will. Right. It, it will, there is nothing that can prevent the outstretched strong arm of the Lord. And yet sometimes we don't express that well, and there are many characters in the Bible that express that poorly. And yet that's still an example to us in the sense that we understand that God does all things. He's working through all things. But it actually gives us this juxtaposition of saying like, that's not the right way to right. express it. And this might be one of those examples. So I'm totally with you. I actually would say that like, this is the test for all of us. And that is like, if we are not actively involved, if we are on the sidelines, if we are mostly consumers, if we haven't stepped forward, then that ought to be a great conviction upon us because Paul has made it clear by the power of the Holy Spirit that this is what it means to be the called out ones. That even that ecclesiology, like by its essence, is not a passive term. It's always active in its application and in its exemplification. So I'm totally with you. I, I think that we just struggle with this because I've heard the same argument. Like, let me say it this way, and this is... I guess I'm just in this feisty mood, so we're just going to totally just uh, put everybody on blast. And that is, I love it. I absolutely love it. And I think there's great biblical fidelity to this. When a pastor gets up and preaches about the importance of membership, and he ties that to what the scriptures instruct us to be part of the local body. And I know some who have gone through membership classes, even in my own church, 
And at the end of that, I love it when there's like presumptive close and the pastor or the elder, the person leading it will say something like, okay, you want to be part of us. You've said that you're committed to us. Where will you serve? And at that point, you, yeah. get, you see something about somebody because sometimes people will be like, okay, I'm tracking with you. Yes, I should do something, anything, any small part, actually, because God is calling us to even all, all of us have small parts. That's the beauty of being part of the family of God, where that that load, so to speak, that is distributed, is, sh- is, is shouldered by everybody. But sometimes people will be like, well, that's where I got offended. Like, how, how could this person ask me? Like, I've just yeah. been here. I just got started. I only just came. I don't know what I want to do yet. And I'm just saying, loved ones, we got to step up. Like we got to play a part in the family. All of us in our relational experiences know that there's an accountability placed upon us by virtue of being born into or put into a place of something that was outside of our control was transcendent to us. And yet we accept the fact that we have a role to play because we've been given a role. And so when you come into your visible church, you also have been given a role. Now, this is not to say that you shouldn't spend some time thinking about where it is that you'd like to be a part of that. That's all true. But my, I guess my gripe is more of in my own life when I, I know that I should do that and I fail to do it. Yeah. In other words, I say, listen, I just don't want to think about it. I'm just happy to come for now. I'm just yeah. happy to come for now. And I think that's the attitude we got to get beyond. Like how much is too much? Am I saying like, if you go to one church one week, you should automatically become a member and you should start yeah. serving? Of course not. But you all know, right? Can we just yeah. be honest? We all know when we cross that line, we're kind of mostly consumers and we hear those that talk about being part of this or being involved in prayer time with the church and really are you exemplifying what it means to be part of this body? Are you shouldering your own weight? And we kind of bristle on the inside. We all know that point. Yeah. And Paul's advice is don't get to that point. Come into the body because Christ has ushered you in and to be in Christ is to be in Christ with everybody else. And so therefore you have a part to play. And it could be as simple as like, like you said, Tony, like and I do love this in my own church. Like we have amazing people who, just love to greet people like literally, and I'm going to say, quote unquote, all just so everybody knows, quote unquote, all they're doing is opening the door and saying good morning. Yeah. But I was just in a time of prayer with a group of brothers and sisters before our service this morning. And this gentleman who had recently returned to the church with his own wife prayed a word of thanksgiving to the Lord saying, thank you for bringing me back and how people welcomed me as if I never left. And I thought, you know what? That's the, you know who did that? It's the greeters at the door and it's the people who saw him that sat near him in the pews that said, I, I just want to say to him, how's it going? And I'm so glad yeah. to see you again. That small act of sacrifice, submission and purposeful building of relationship was the thing that brought this gentleman to a place of surrender before God and thanksgiving in front of him. And I was just undone by that. You know what didn't do that? What didn't do that is more reading in the Puritans. Yeah. was more working through systematic theology was making sure that we memorize the right things to say from the catechism or from the creeds. Like, I understand that all those things can be foundational. What did it was somebody saying, I'm going to reach out to this person in the smallest way possible. Instead of just being like, oh, I haven't seen that guy in a while. Yeah. That's it. So like, I, I'm with you on this. Like, this is where it matters for us. And I actually think like as reform people, we could have the corner on the market, so to speak. Like yeah. we can do this better than anybody else. If we have a mind that's truly transformed, like Romans 12 style, then our hearts are going to be in a place where we're actually serious about being part of the church, like serious, like really into it. Like yeah. it's going to be our, our hobby our second job our because like, again, it's hard to not be serious about being part of your own family. Even if you dislike your own family, because by your very nature, you are associated with people that you got grouped with that are outside of your control. Like, yeah. as far as I know, th- this is 
some real insider baseball. You're going to remember this. I remember when you told me that you were going to propose to Ashley or that you'd like to do that. Do you remember when this happened? <laughs> I do. Oh boy, do I. I do. <laughs> so this happens like, you know, at, at the ocean, we were actually, it was a massive storm. We all went out for a walk. There were lots of people there. It was the strangest time ever for you and I to have this conversation. It was. But what I'm, all I'm trying to bring this up is I didn't get to pick you. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so glad that God brought you into like our like literal and natural family, but I didn't get to pick you. And the thing is though, you and I could have easily decided, you know what, because we didn't get to pick each other. Yeah. Like you picked my sister and my sister picked you. And, you know, outside of course the, the will of God, which is all superintending. And of course this example, but we didn't get to pick each other. We could have just said, you know what, we're just going to do the normal in-law thing. Right. That's cool. enough, right? Like we'd be amicable, but our goal was part of the invisible church was to say like, we're going to build a relationship with one another. And I'm just saying, do we do that in our churches? Yeah. Do we actually care about the people that are shoulder to shoulder with us? that are singing the same praises that are listening to the same sermon. They're trying to serve together. that are praying together with one another. I just think there's a lot more that I can do there to continue to build. And that it's actually what God calls us to. And I would say, for anybody out there saying like, do I need to study more? I'm just going to say to you, honestly, maybe not. And yeah. maybe what we all need is to be present more, not to, again, forsake any other legitimate responsibilities, but is there a prayer service that you maybe should attend? Maybe. Is there a small group that you can get a part of? Maybe. Does it have, maybe there's other stuff you can do that has nothing to do with programs? Maybe. Yeah. But like whatever you're doing there, when especially when you're gathering for the Lord's day, are you doing it for the edification of saints? And lastly, because I've just gone into my own sermon here and it's already the one hour mark is I, I would say everybody should listen to what Tony said. Cause it's, it's right on. And that is what is the gift that the Holy spirit has given you? And there are of course, non-exhaustive lists in scripture that could help us to understand the process, what some of those things are, but it may be that there are people in my own community. We have this lovely program at our church where people are being taught English as a second language. And there's always a need for somebody to host people who are especially from a foreign nation that are still acclimating to American culture, especially over the holidays. Maybe that's for you, loved ones. And maybe you can do that better than I could. And probably, well, I know for a fact you can. Um, it's it's that kind of stuff. Like, don't wait for somebody to create a program. Either you do it or don't worry about the program Yeah, and just have some people over. Do, do something though. I guess it's just, my plea is, would you do something to make sure that the gifting that the Holy Spirit has given you, which is perfectly fitted to the visible church of which you belong, is actually made manifest. Because to quote Esther, for such a time as this, you are actually needed. Yeah. And God has made you in a place that you are needed. So let's go about doing the business for which we are actually needed and God has set us up to do. Yeah. So one of one of the great joys of my life in in reference to this podcast is if you listen carefully. Uh, and sometimes I try to call it out like I'm doing right now. You can actually see sometimes when Jesse or my or our shared theology or our shared understanding of something kind of like develops in real time as we're going through the show. <laughs> and that just happened to me. So mark this. One of the one of the things that I would love to do over the next year is to produce T-shirts or material or something that latches into kind of like key phrases that we've use, come up with that we come back to. Uh, and one of those key phrases is just read a little bit more, right? So every time we come up against a, a challenge in the scripture where something doesn't feel like it fits right, or we're coming up against an objection we don't understand, just read a little bit more. So I read a large portion of chapter 12. And chapter 13 of First Corinthians is, of course, the love chapter, which is commonly read at weddings, even though it has nothing to do with romantic love, although it is very applicable to how we treat our spouses. That's not what it's about. 
I literally just in real time realized the relationship between chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. So chapter 12 uh, starts with, okay, concerning spiritual gifts. So that language now concerning spiritual gifts is Paul saying like, okay, you asked me a question about spiritual gifts. Here's what I have to say in response to your question, your situation, your statement, whatever. Chapter right. 13, we we forget that the chapter breaks aren't there, right? So So immediately before chapter 13, verse 31 says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. I will show you a more excellent way. So we think chapter 13 yes. is the more excellent way. He goes on to talk about love, what it is, what it isn't, what it looks like, and how the greatest of these is love. Chapter 14, pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that of prophecy. If you continue just reading a little bit more, all of that is about the mutual upbringing, upbuilding of the church. The reason yes. that, uh, the reason that, uh, Prophecy is considered to be a greater, higher spiritual gift than tongues, according to Paul, is, quote, chapter verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And then if you yes. continue down, verse 12, so the, the the primary issue we're going on, we're going to be going on to like hour two of this episode. I'm all, <laughs> I'm all ready to run through a wall, Jesse. The Do primary it. issue that Paul is addressing in, in this section of the 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 letter here is that some people were making a huge deal out of spiritual gifts. They were creating this hierarchy of spiritual gifts that some Christians were better than others, others because they had this spiritual gift or that spiritual gift. He says in verse 12, and I have to read this with a little bit of the sort of sarcastic bent that he has in Galatians, just because that seems like it's right. He says, so with yourself, since you are so eager for the manifestations of the spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Do you want to see the spirit move in your congregation? Strive to excel in building up the church. Right on. And this is, I mean, you're like spiciness, feistiness, whatever we want to call it. It's 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 contagious today. Yeah, it is. If you're that person, I'm going to get like real direct. Maybe we have too many subscribers. So let's just like get rid of a bunch of them. Let's weed out the weak ones. If you're that person that every week when they talk about how many, uh, how much help they need in the nursery and you're like, I don't really like kids. Who cares? They need the help. You can, you're not, you can do it. Like, why aren't you doing it? Right. Every week when they say like, we really need someone who can, we need someone to clean the bathrooms this week. Right. Mm. A lot of small churches have like a cleaning rotation. Nobody loves, I shouldn't say nobody. Most people don't love to clean. Right. right? Some people really do. Those are, we call those people weirdos, but <laughs> nobody really loves to clean. Right. But somebody has to do it. And th this is where it comes to the family analogy, and then we'll we'll wrap it up here. One of the things I've heard so much amazing feedback is the episode where you and mom talked through Schwamm family traditions. People just love oh, that right. episode. Um, I hear feedback about it all the time. People love mom, and, and we love mom. One of the For things sure. that happens at Christmas time is we all recognize she's kind of like doing all this work to make Christmas time special, to make sure we have food, to make sure that we've got good treats to eat, that we've got breakfast and lunch and dinner all on time. When she says, you know, I'll be sitting in the other room, sometimes playing on my phone, sometimes reading a book. When she says, Tony, can you take the trash out? It's full. I don't love taking the trash out. I'm not like, yes, I get to take the trash out. But I get up and I do it because it needs to get done. And it's what the family needs. It's what we need to be done. It's a way of me showing everyone around me in the family that I love them by taking care of that task when, it, when it's required. Now, sometimes she asks someone else to do it. Sometimes, sometimes someone just takes the trash out because they recognize that it needs to be done. All of those are concrete examples in a family of how we serve one another. 
And if you are in the church and you're not thinking of it in those terms, you need to start thinking of it in those terms. Does this, does the nursery need help? Why aren't you doing it? Right. Does somebody need to mow the lawn? Why aren't you doing it? Does somebody need to paint the, the windowsills? Right. Somebody needs to do it. Why aren't you doing it? Now I want to just caveat all of that. There are probably people who have legitimate reasons why they can't or shouldn't be doing those things. Of course. Right. If you have a heart condition <laughs> and you, you know, you can't, you can't chase little kids around because you just physically right. can't do it. then maybe you're not the right person to work in the nursery. Right. If you are the person who has like a heat intolerance and if you're outside in the summer, you're going to have serious health problems, then maybe you're not the right person to be doing the lawn. But if you're able and will and and if if what is is that is preventing you from filling a need is that you're not willing, then that's probably something you need to take up your cross and think a little bit more about being willing to just serve where it's needed. And this goes back to a lot of what we said when it comes to like like tithes and offering. Right. We are obligated to voluntarily and generously and happily do something. And it's a weird, it's a weird dynamic that we're obligated to do something voluntary. But I think that that really is where the Christian life excels. It's like we are obligated to serve the body willingly and voluntarily. And I think we just, we just don't think about it very often. Yeah, you're right. And that willingness again is born out of this fact that God has established who the family is. So it's, it's totally not about you. And I would say, that you're right on and that really I think this is a question of there is you have a giftedness that you can serve in some capacity it's not about it's not, in other words if somebody's saying like I just don't know if I fit in if there's something that I can do there is there is and it may be again as little as like it doesn't have to be something formal but like everybody is able-bodied in some way to help even if that is basically more about listen we need people to pray we need somebody to come alongside to be an encourager and in my own church, we have like a children's ministry, for instance, that happens during the week. It's called Awana. And they need people all the time to volunteer to listen to the children who have memorized verses. They need listeners. And I love it so much because it's like such a great place where somebody who's like, you know what? There's not a lot I can do now, but I can come and sit and I can double check verses and I can listen to little kids proclaim to me the scriptures. Like, so there's just a place for you, loved ones. Like, just go and find that place. I just think it's not about... It, it, what this does, it betrays our hearts in that often we're just unwilling rather than that there's not a place for us. So I think that is like, in some ways, the very definitive episode on mutual edification when it comes to ecclesiology. What say you? Well, since I have now acquired a young child on my lap who crawled into my office, I agree. This is the definitive episode. And yeah. Augie, he's not talking yet, but hopefully he'll help <laughs> us someday. Until next time, honor everyone. <laughs> Love the brotherhood. What if I'm